turn in your scriptures to John chapter 6. If anybody can't hear me now, just stop me and raise your hand or whatever. I'll cut a mic on or do something else. I just want to make sure I'm heard. My head's all chunked up too. But John chapter 6, uh, something I thought about again this morning, you know when we buy a new car in the glove pocket, used to be, I guess it is now, I hadn't bought one in about 40 years, but uh, in the glove pocket of a new vehicle there used to be a manufacturer's manual that shows the operator of that vehicle how to run it like the manufacturer intended for it to be run. This is what this is, folks. This is all about us. They did a study in Sweden several years ago to determine whether or not those small farms there in the that part of the world would be better off operating with, with uh, animals pulling plows than they would be with tractors because the places were so small. They used as their level of integrity the oxygen level in an animal's bloodstream and they determined to see how much it would cost to make a crop with an animal with feed and harness and plows and whatever over or under the cost of that of a small tractor. This was a uh, not a, a, a spiritual group that did this study, but a very secular one, and they came out with some very interesting figures that if you wanted to keep the blood oxygen level in an animal as high as you could keep it, have him give you the most work that he could give you for the least amount of feed. They determined that if you would rest that animal one day out of seven, <laughs> he could give you the most work for the least amount of upkeep exactly what God said in Deuteronomy to do. That's for us too. As we look at the stories in the Bible, what we ought to ask is why did God put it there? There's a reason for him putting every single story in the book. Who is it to benefit? Who's he looking at? Who is he trying to teach something to? And to remember, too, in this story this morning that Peter was a middle-aged man, and we know something about Peter. He was very brash. He had no clue who he was. He thought he was a lot of things that his jumping up and, and, and getting himself involved in proved that he wasn't and that John was a teenage boy. Jesus called him into service as a teenager. 
and we're looking at the story about Jesus walking on water. Most of us know it. It's in three books of the Bible. John wrote about it, Mark wrote about it, and Matthew wrote about it. And they all looked at it from a different perspective. I don't know why Luke, the historian of the group, did not write about it, but he didn't. But I'm going to take the story and look at it from three different perspectives this morning and see if I can get us to understand exactly what God was trying to do when he put Jesus in this predicament and who he was trying to do it for. To give you a clue, in John chapter 16, in verse 33, it's just one verse, don't have to turn there because I'm fixing to read it. Jesus said, these are the things I have spoken to you that in me ye might have peace. It's all about peace. How do you have peace? People pray for peace, for the absence of anxiety, for fear, absence of fear. We take all kind of medicines to keep us from being anxious and fearing. In this world, he says, Ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So I think this is another way that Jesus says this very thing. Take cheer. Have confidence. Have courage. Because in me, you can have peace because I've overcome the world. The thing that bothers you in the world if you'll turn it over to me, I'll fix it where it won't bother you. So let's look at John chapter 6 and verse 15. Now understand the situation here that has got them in this situation they're in. In Jerusalem, Herod the king had just beheaded John the Baptist, a real cornerstone for all the Christians in Jerusalem. John was the forerunner of Christ. Jesus called him the greatest prophet that ever was. And in order to satisfy his wife, Herod had his head cut off and served her up on a silver platter. And all the Christians in Jerusalem were scared to death. And they went to a place called a desert place. Please understand something. When the scriptures talk about a desert place, they're not talking about sand and cactus. They're talking about a deserted place, a place where there are no people. So for fear of those who were in control, so many Christians went to places 
in the wilderness where there weren't anybody that would see what they were doing. And that's where they found themselves when Jesus, after preaching and teaching all day, told the disciples, these people are hungry. And the disciples said, well, we need to give them a break so they can go out to towns around and buy them something to eat. And Jesus said, what have we got? And that was the loaves and the fishes, remember? And Jesus has just got through feeding 5,000 men and the women and children that were with them off of one little boy's happy meal. And it impressed people. It really, really impressed them. And it says in verse verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet should come into the world. After seeing him feed 5,000 men, and the women and children that were with them in the crowd from, what, three loaves and two fishes? They said, surely this has got to be the Messiah. Verse 15, When Jesus therefore perceived that they should come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Jesus wanted to get away from the crowd. There had been a lot of pressure on him that day. He had been teaching people all day long. And he fed them. And then he wanted to get by himself. Jesus did this often, to get by himself, to pray, to regain strength from God. Verse 16, And when the evening was come, his disciples went down under the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum, and it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. Jesus left them, told them to get in a boat and go across the sea, go across the lake, because it's the widest place. It was about 28 miles, I think, wide. The Sea of Galilee. And they were up at the upper end of it where there wasn't many people that lived up there. But it was in the area where Jesus was pretty well raised within 10, 15 miles of his hometown. And when the people saw this great crowd of people saw what he had done with feeding the miracle. They said, surely he has got to be the Messiah. Well, their idea was they were going to take him and make him king. And see, that wasn't part of God's plan. Jesus couldn't be their king. He had to be their sacrifice. So if you will then, please turn to Mark chapter 6. And let's look at some more of the story. So many of the things are the same in both stories. 
but there are differences in every story too. And I've tried to fix it where I can cover the differences. In Mark chapter 6, and verse 45, and straightway, or immediately, he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and go to the other side before under Bethsaida while he sent away the people. See, we're backing up just a few minutes here because before they went down to the boat and got in the boat, he had told them, I'm going to send the people away. Y'all go ahead and get in the boat and be going across the sea, the lake, if you will, to Bethsaida. And they went to the boat and he went to the mountain by himself to continue praying. Verse 46, and when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when evening was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Now see, it, it sets up the situation to where with both accounts, we know exactly where everybody was. The disciples are in the boat on the way across the north end of the Sea of Galilee into a town called Bethsaida. Jesus was up on the mountain praying. Now, their mountains weren't like Red Mountain, okay? Sometimes they called a mountain like a hill. But he was in a place by himself and it was a little higher than the land around him. In verse 48, and he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them walking upon the sea and would have passed by them. Now there's a lot to be said right there. Understand something. The trip, them getting in the boat and rowing across that end of the Sea of Galilee was supposed to take about two hours. So when it got just about dark, he told them to go to the boat. They got in the boat, and they start rowing the boat across that part of the sea to get to the other side about an average trip of two hours. Then it says, and he saw them toiling at rowing. In his mind, Jesus saw them rowing, and because the wind was blowing in their face, they couldn't make any headway. And they had been toiling for about three miles and making no, no, no headway at all. And he saw them in the midst of what they were doing. So between 3 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the morning, which is the fourth watch, 
He came out walking on the water. Here they are rowing the boat and not getting anywhere. Supposed to be a two-hour trip, and it had just gotten dark when he told them to get in the boat. So since dark till somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning, they're rowing this boat, and they hadn't got where they're going yet. Now remember, three or four of these disciples were fishermen. They made their living in boats. They knew about boats. And the Sea of Galilee had a record for having some pretty violent storms on it. So they were, this is the place where they did their fishing. So they knew something about that too. So here they are out there rowing as hard as they can. They're frightened. They're scared. They're afraid something's going to happen to them. And the storm is all about them. And they see this figure walking across the water. And they said that it looked like he was going to walk on by them. I had never caught this in Scripture. But I found three other places where Jesus was making people think that he wasn't going to pay attention to the trouble they were in. He was just going to walk right on by them. For what it's worth in my life, I have found out, you hear me sometimes say, Lord, if you're not involved in their problem already, please, at our request, would you get involved with their problem and bring it into a tune with your will, with God's will? Because there are several places, and I've got them marked, where God did not get involved, did not put Jesus to get involved in something until the people there asked him to. You said, well, the Lord knows that they're having trouble. Wonder why he wouldn't do it. He's waiting on us to ask. We're his representatives here on this earth. He gets his glory from us people. And so many times he would miss glory unless we ask him to get involved in somebody's problem. He knows the problem. He knew it days ahead of when it was going to happen. But still yet, he lets us suffer until we ask him, please get in on this. Please help me or help them or help this person or that person. That's the reason that we're such an integral part of God's plan down here on this earth. Let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He can't get glory until we bring him in on a plate. Why he would set up a situation like that to depend on us to give him glory, I don't know. Because we fall way short of what we ought to be in doing that. But please understand, if you know anything at all about Jesus, you know he's not going to walk by your problem. If you're calling on him, all you've got to do is say something to him. 
He's not intentionally ignoring you. He's waiting on you to call him to get involved. And he does this in several, several places in Scripture. So if you believe what Jesus is trying to teach us to believe, you know that he does not intend to ever bypass your problem. My scripture says the only thing that makes God turn his head away from us is our sin. That we get involved in sin, we do things God doesn't want us to do, and he has to turn his head. And he doesn't turn it back until we ask forgiveness for it. So that's the reason, like the sermon last week, to continually ask for forgiveness so we can stay in tune with God, in fellowship with God. But that's what they thought. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it to have been a spirit or a ghost. They didn't recognize Jesus. Now you can cut them a little bit of slack there because they've been rowing in the dark in a boat for hours. They're give slap out, as you could say in the South. They're scared. They're upset, afraid they're going to die. And they see this figure walking on the water. And they cried out to him. For they all saw him. And they were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer. <laughs> be confident. Don't be afraid. It is I. Don't be afraid. How many times has he said that in order to get somebody to recognize him? It's me, it's Jesus. You know, the one that saved you. Have you not learned my voice? Have you not learned my, what I look like? How I act? By studying scriptures, have you not gotten a little bit of a handle on how I do things? I'm not going to leave you in a jam. Call on me. He told them. It's me. It's me, guys. Don't be afraid. Turn to Matthew chapter 14. We'll finish the story there. Neither John nor Mark includes the part of this story that involved Peter. They tell the story without Peter's involvement in it at all. But hey, if you've ever been in a wreck, you go around with a piece of paper and ask somebody for their name and to tell you 
could you describe to me just what happened? You're going to get three or four different stories or one for every different person that sees it. That's just the way things are. And God takes the different perspective of people. What, what did we say several weeks ago? That perspective is the angle in which you see something, the angle in which you look at something, like an egg is a whole day's work for a chicken, you know. It's how you look at it. And perception is the idea you get from what you've just seen. And people have different perceptions. But a chicken and egg is a whole day's work, right? Matthew chapter 14 and verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, God, Jesus just told him it's me. And Peter says, if it is you, he still doesn't recognize it. Bid me come unto thee on the water. If it's you, Jesus, tell me to come to you, and I'll come to you. And he said, come. Come on. If that's what you want to do, Peter, come on. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now he starts out walking on the water. Just like Jesus was doing. But when he saw the wind boisterous, that's the only place that word is used in the Bible, boisterous. It has a meaning of being terribly powerful. He saw the storm. His mind was, he was out of his mind for a little bit. He wasn't thinking like Peter often does. He jumped out of the boat. He's intending to walk to Jesus. And then he stops and looks down at how powerful the storm is around his feet and he starts sinking. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried saying, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Why did you doubt me? Now, an observation. O ye of little faith. Now, think about this. Peter could have turned around to the other disciples who were still in the boat who never made an attempt to crawl over the side and walk on the water. Well, you guys didn't even try. He must have been talking about you. Because at least I tried. 
But then the guys in the boat that could have said, well, look, we knew people not supposed to walk on water. Apparently, you didn't understand that. But faith, folks, the faith that Jesus is talking about is when we know something that other people don't know. And we believe something that other people don't believe. If I asked for you to raise your hand that you believe that you would be in eternity with Jesus Christ, probably every hand in here would be raised because that's what you believe. Other people don't believe that at all. Now who's got the most faith? Is it Peter that stepped out of the boat to try and then sunk? Or is it the guys in the boat that were probably not quite as brash as Peter was and decided we'll lay low rather than be embarrassed? (laughs) How many times we as children of God to keep from being embarrassed, to keep from being singled out, we just stay in the crowd. We stay back in the protection of the group for fear that we'll be made some kind of a sideshow or something. And you know, in Jesus, I think about the fifth chapter of Matthew talks about if you don't give a testimony to me down here and what kind of relationship I have with you, if you're not willing to say that to everybody, then when you come before me in heaven, I won't say that in heaven. Think about something. What was troubling the disciples? The strongest Christians, they weren't Christians yet, they weren't saved yet at this point, but they had been following Jesus nearly three years. They're some of the stronger believing people around. They had more material to believe than most everybody else did. What was bothering them? The storm. It had them afraid. It had them working like you wouldn't believe. And they were certainly anxious. And here comes Jesus walking on that which had them scared to death. He does that a lot, folks. And there's something that we need to see in that. When you find yourself scared, if you can remember this story, because I think this is one reason he put the story in here, the very thing that terrifies us, if we can stop and gather our wits together for a moment, we can see that God is fixing to use that very thing that scares us to teach us something to teach us that in this world ye shall have tribulation. 
but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The very thing that we happen to be frightened of, if we can gather our wits for that moment and say, Jesus doesn't want me afraid of this, wonder if he's going to take this thing that scared me to death and turn it around and show me how I can trust him with it. It's an interesting thing. Maybe it's been pointed out to you. Maybe it hadn't. Most of us remember the story about Moses and Pharaoh and all the plagues of Egypt. Do you know every single plague that God brought on Egypt through Moses involved something that the Egyptians were worshiping? (laughs) He didn't just pull frogs out of the air. He didn't pull locusts out of the air. He didn't make the river run red with blood where the water couldn't be used out of thin air. They worshiped frogs. They gave special attention to frogs and locusts and they worshiped the Nile River. And they worshiped their firstborn sons. And what did he do with them? He killed every one of them. He took the very things that they were putting their faith in and used it to destroy him. God has got a human side to him, maybe more than one. This is one I recognize because he's pulled it on me several times. He pulled it on Job. Wait, 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 wait a minute, little man. Just who do you think you are? That's what he told Job. Do you know where the mountain goats have their babies? No, because you've never been up there and see one born. And he started asking Job, you think you're so smart. What about this and what about this and what about that? Anytime God decides to take one of us and humble us to bring knowledge of our own shortcomings to us, he can do it with no problem whatsoever because we got them, folks, and we know what they are. But he takes those things that we tend to put a little bit of confidence in I've talked to several people who have such a dependence on their insurance. I was forced to live without health insurance the first 26 years of my adult life. I've learned, God showed me, you don't have to have it. And we're scared to death to live a day without it. That's the kind of things I'm talking about. The very things that we depend on so so strongly, God will take those things and show them, I'm stronger than that. Be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. It's me. I'm here. You just called on me. We don't see him like they saw him walking on the water, but he's here. He comes in and takes our situation and makes us learn not to depend on whatever it is 
that's using us to scare us to death, but to depend on Him. And we can do it ten times a day in given circumstances. Jesus might appear like He's going to walk on by. You may even think, I prayed, but it doesn't, just doesn't seem to me like Jesus is doing anything. No, 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 no. This story teaches us that the way we perceive that is not true. Might look like he was going to walk on by, but he really wasn't. It just as soon as one of them called out, he turned and stopped and walked over to the boat. It shows us some things about Jesus that maybe we can't see in another story. God has this thing and he does not appreciate at all us putting our dependency on anything before him. He calls it idol worship. You are worshiping something stronger than you're worshiping me. I don't know about you, but I have had to give up several of the things that I saw that I was putting between me and my God. It would take more of my time than what God would take. It would take more of my attention than what God would take. I had my own ambitions in this world, and I had to learn that my ambitions weren't God's ambitions. That he had a road for me that was way better for me than the road that I had planned to go on. But he had to show me over and over and over and over that those things on that road that you want are not as important as I am. And I will give you something to replace those things that are better than those things you've picked out. I'm telling you, you choose me. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all these other things will be added unto you. That's plain scripture. Seek Jesus first. He'll take what you choose to show you him. And that's what he did in this case right here. Don't make your decisions too fast. Don't make your choices too fast. Wait on God to show you which way to move. What does he say? In Jeremiah, there's a voice behind you that you will hear, and it'll tell you to go left or go right. I remember the story that Anthony tells that he was at another church and we were meeting and he said it, it was Easter and he had heard every cantata you could hear and he'd never seen anybody walk the aisle and was saved at a cantata. So after he got through teaching Sunday school, he wasn't interested in the, the musical program. So he got in his car and drove out to the main highway and when he got there, he said, well, Lord, here I am. Which way do you want me to go? 
And the Lord said, turn right. And he turned right. And he said, now where do you want me to go? He said, I want you to go to the church at Briarfield. And that's where he went. And he's been here ever since. Now, I know that doesn't happen to everybody. But I'm going to tell you this, it should. Because it's like I told somebody last week. They said, I think maybe God is calling us to another place. I said, well, please go where God calls you. I'll be praying that you'll find that place. God doesn't want everybody here. We couldn't hold them all. And somebody coming in here and trying to change us to believe something we didn't, wasn't believing already. We're what we're supposed to be. Because that's the way God wants it. And I will pray that you will be in the place that you meet with the people that you're supposed to be with. And the place where you can add something to what's going on. And the place that something can be added to what you know about what's going on. It's all about Jesus being in charge, folks. That's all it is. It's no big thing. Paul said, I I pray that you won't miss the simplicity that's in Jesus Christ. The simplicity. It's not fancy. Churches that are three stories, they don't have any different Jesus than churches that are one story. They really don't. It's all about Jesus and how you approach him and what he wants for you to choose to have done with your life. And you can start that at any day you want to. And you will find very shortly Yes, there will be some problems. But I'm going to tell you, you'll live a more blessed life than you have ever lived if you'll just figure out what God has planned for you and get right in the middle of it. And here is Jesus in this place. Why did he, why did God put this story in there? I hope I've showed it to you. It will make you understand that Jesus is more important than anything else you can choose. And Jesus will scare you with some of the things to make you pay attention and then take the very thing that he scares you with and use it to show you You don't need to be afraid of it. There's several stories like this. Daniel in the lion's den. The three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. No way out for them. You know they had to be uptight. At least a little bit. But God showed them that when you're with me, you're okay. And something we tend to forget. (laughs) I told somebody last week is talking about buying gold, putting some of his stuff in gold. I said, he said, aren't you concerned about your retirement and stuff like that? I said, no, no. 
Because that gold they're talking about changing my paper money into, I'm going to be walking on it barefooted after the last breath I take. So what's the big deal? God uses it for asphalt in our world. He wants us to see him as the most important thing in the whole world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for explaining yourself to us. You say that a spiritual person is one that knows and understands you. So teach us, Lord, about you. Make us know who you are and how you think and how you operate. And to understand what makes you tick. So that maybe we can make decisions that we'll be closer to a blessed life than we are today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.